Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. We're just blessed to have you back at the Institute of Catholic Culture and uh, working in collaboration with Catholic Answers. Welcome. It is great to be back with you, uh, Deacon Sabatino. Thanks for having me. And, you know, I, I would begin, uh, Deacon, by saying this. I, I remember of, of all the Catholic doctrines when, when I was Protestant that I thought were nuts. I mean, let's face it. I thought they were insane. You, you have to say the Immaculate Conception, the Assumption were, were two you know, in the top three. But the other one would be the Eucharist. I mean, you, you guys are saying, and I remember when I encountered my Catholic buddy in the Marines, and the good deacon there mentioned, uh, I was in the Marine Corps when I met a Catholic who was ready, willing, and able to defend his faith. And I, you know, I thought I had him on this one. I mean, come on, you can't really believe this, right? And when I start, you know, that you're going to eat God, okay? You believe you're going to eat God, right? And I remember uh, his challenges really got me started studying Catholicism. And so I started reading Catholic sources, and my buddy would provide me with Catholic sources to read. And, and I was without fear. I said, fine, I'll read whatever you give me. I'm going to torch this stuff, right? I'm going to take it apart. And by the way, that's why I'm Catholic. But I remember reading and I discovered what I didn't know before that Catholics actually believe that when Jesus Christ on Holy Thursday said the first Mass, right, when he said the words of institution, this is my body, this is the chalice of my blood, that these crazy Catholics believe that Jesus Christ is no longer holding bread in his hand, he's no longer holding wine, but... but both of those species are entirely substantially transformed, transubstantiation, right, into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the Lord. So I thought, oh, my gosh, I've got him. So when I couldn't wait to get to work to nail him with this because I was just sure he didn't know this. There's no way. I mean, you believe you're going to hold, you know, Jesus is going to hold himself in his own hands. Now, this was before I read Augustine's commentary on the Psalms where he says exactly that. But at any rate, um, so I hit him with that. And, and I want to say to all my Catholic listeners right now, folks, be bold when you evangelize. Proclaim the truth of the gospel and let Jesus do the work. Often we're so timid in our proclamation. When you know the truth of the faith, you're deeply rooted in your faith. It brings the kind of boldness that St. Paul talks about in Romans 1, 15 and 16, where he says, as much as it is in me, I am prepared to preach the gospel to those who are at Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice, as much as it's in him, he's bold. He's ready to proclaim. But if it's not in you, guess what's going to happen? You're not going to be bold. You're not going to be evangelizing. Well, thanks be to God, Matt Dula was bold. Well, imagine this. 
I go after him and I say, you know, you can't believe, Matt, that on, you know, what you call Holy Thursday, when Jesus said, this is my body, he's no longer holding bread in his hand. He's holding himself, body, blood, soul, and divinity in his own hand. And I'm thinking, you know, he's going to stutter and stammer and I will never forget his response. Sergeant Mandula looked me in the eye and he said, what, Tim, you don't believe God can do that? Man, you don't have a very high opinion of God, do you, right? And it was just, I was stymied. It stopped me in my tracks, that response. It was the last thing I was expecting. He simply believed. Now, of course, my response was kind of, I was hemming and hawing, and I said, well, I guess he could do that, but that's nuts. And really, that's why I, I title one of my talks on the Eucharist, The Eucharist, God's Extravagant Love Revealed. Because really, from the outside in, folks, the Eucharist does look nuts. I mean, the fact that we're going to consume body, blood, soul, and divinity, Almighty God. It does look nuts, my friends. But really, the Eucharist is tantamount to God's love for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Everything that God does is rooted in love. Why? Because 1 John 4, 8 tells us God is love. And what is love but to will the good of the other? And the Eucharist is just a continuation of that love, that pure love of, that constitutes the very nature of God himself. We see in the creation, God creates knowing that the creation can give nothing back to him, right? But he creates anyway. Why? Because he loves. He pours himself out in that infinite act, really, of his love in the creation. Not only does he know the creation can't give him anything back, but he knows that creation will one day kill him. And yet he creates anyway. And what is the incarnation? But God continuing, continuing to pour himself out. The gift of self, even in the incarnation, as Philippians 2, 5 describes it. Christ, though he was in the form of God, thought his equality with God, not something to be clung to, but he emptied himself, taking upon himself the form of a slave. See, it's... Empty, that self-empty and that infinite act of humiliation, of love, is what is the essence of the incarnation. But even that was not enough for God's love. He continues to pour himself out. Scripture says there, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself even unto death, death of the cross. Therefore God hath exalted him and given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ every knee should bend, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice he continues to pour himself out in the creation, in the incarnation, even unto the death on the cross. But my brothers and sisters, that was not enough for God. The Eucharist that we're going to talk about tonight is God even more so continuing to pour himself out in an infinite act of humiliation, taking upon himself the form of bread and wine to be consumed by us so that we can be consumed by him. When he enters into us in this sacred moment of Holy Communion, and he is present, body, blood, soul, and divinity within us, 
under the appearances of bread and wine in that holy moment. And I pray all of us prepare well before we receive communion. Graces are confected that cannot be duplicated, my friends. This is the greatest gift in the universe. And we have the opportunity to experience it every day. It's overwhelming when you think about it. But my friends, when you begin to understand the Eucharist as that infinite act of love continued in our lives, then I believe you have a backdrop for John chapter 6. All right, now what I'm going to do here quickly is I want to just read through some of the key verses of John 6. We're going to just have ourselves an old-fashioned Bible study tonight, all right? We're going to read through some verses of Scripture. I'm going to make some commentary here, and then as the good deacon said, we'll have some questions as well. I want to begin here just by reading the first six verses of John's Gospel. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a multitude following him. Now, I want you to highlight this because they saw the signs which he did on those who were deceived. So why are they following him? Because they saw the signs. Very important point. Jesus went up into the hills and there sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, this is another key. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a multitude was coming to him, Jesus said to Philip, how are we going to buy bread so that these people may eat? My goodness, forgive me for that smile, but God's got a sense of humor here. Uh, this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. I want to bring out a couple of things here. First of all, they're following him because they see the signs. Jesus has been performing all sorts of miracles and signs that attracted the people. They are following him, and we're going to see they're going to continue to follow him. They are devotedly and devoutly following him because he sees the signs. Number two, the Passover is near at hand. I always like to ask my, my students this. Uh, how many of you are happy that God knows what he's going to do? Is anybody else here happy that God knows what he's going Yes, I am. Thanks be to God. God, have you ever noticed in, in your life that it appears we've been set up? Have you ever known? I mean, when I first shared my conversion story here at Catholic Answers, I did a three-hour CD set called Jimmy Swaggart Made Me Catholic. And it was a real blessing to be able to do because I was able to tell my whole story and my family story and how we all became Catholic. We, could all, we all have a testimony. We all have a story of how God has worked in our lives. And in fact, if we would take the time to really reflect and meditate upon our lives, we can see the fingerprints of God everywhere. Why? Because in a sense, God does set us up, right? God is constantly always working in every one of our lives. He brings people to us. He brings situations to us. In fact, there's nothing that happens to us that happens for any other reason than God either causes or permits it in order to ultimately bring us home to him. God is orchestrating our lives, but so often we don't see it. Well, here, God is setting us up. And in fact, I argue from all eternity, God was waiting for the perfect time to share the truth about the Eucharist. From all eternity, he waits, right? I mean, think about that. that that's that's uh, fodder for a, a whole talk there, right? Galatians 4, 4, sacred scripture says, when the fullness of time had come, right? God sent forth his, his son. 
How many of you know God's never late, he's never early? I, although I know in my life I often think he's late, <laughs> but he's not. But he waits until the perfect time to teach this lesson on the Eucharist, but he waits for some things to happen. These signs were being performed. The people are following because of the signs. Now the Passover is at hand. Well, you and I know as Catholics what St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6 and 7, Jesus Christ is our Passover. This is not by accident that it just happened to be the Passover, but it's because he's about to share with us our new covenant Passover, as Paul describes it. I wish we had time to get to That's actually a, a whole nother talk in my CD set on the Eucharist, the Passover in 1 Corinthians, um, St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians there in 1 Corinthians. But at any rate, St. Paul describes the Eucharist as our Passover in 1 Corinthians 5. So here we have the Passover. And so he's got thousands of Jews coming from all over. We've got an awesome audience here. They're following him. They're passionate about him. Things are coming together. And so Jesus hears from his father, now is the time. And so look what he does. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing a multitude was coming, he says to Philip, now, you know, in my mind's eye, I'm, I, you know, maybe this is just him, but if I've been waiting for all, from all eternity to share the truth of the greatest gift in the universe, the Eucharist, uh, I don't think I'm going to start it the way Jesus does here. How does he start? He doesn't start with fanfare and trumpets and dur -dur, here comes the truth of the Eucharist. How does he start it? He says to Philip, hey, Philip, uh, how are we going to buy bread to feed all these folks? Now, I, I don't know about y'all, but if I'm Philip, you know what I'm saying to Jesus? I'm saying, who died and made us the caterer? Right? What are you talking about? There's, there's, we, we hear later, at least 6,000 6, men beside women and children. That's probably 20,000 at least. And Jesus says, uh, we're going to feed all these folks? What are you thinking, Jesus, right? That's how he starts. How are we going to buy bread that these people may eat? And then look at verse 6. This he said to test him, for he himself knew exactly what he was going to do. Now, of course, Philip responds, as you and I would. He's still in the natural. He's in the flesh. He's in the soulish realm. He, he has not yet been introduced to sanctifying grace and the illumination that would come at Pentecost. And too often we're in the same boat here. But notice, uh, Philip answers, man, 200 denarii would not be enough, man. How are we? In other words, Philip is saying, hey, guys, anybody got any money? We need some serious cash in a hurry, right? He does not yet see what Jesus Christ is calling him to. See, Jesus is calling the 12 apostles to be his priests that one day will supernaturally feed the entire flock with the Eucharist miraculously, as this good deacon here is about to be ordained and empowered to do something supernatural, that is, confect the Eucharist, the apostles were not there yet. He's looking down and saying, man, we need some cash in a hurry. But I love Andrew here. Let's keep reading here. In, in verse 8, I always say, you know, Andrew had to be from North Carolina. He had to be. And you know what I said? Now, that's a joke. Okay, I didn't really mean it. Oh, because notice here, Andrew 
Simon Peter's brother says, hey, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Had to be from North Carolina because he's scoping out who's got the best fish. But at any rate, but what is this among so many? Now, what Jesus says here is profound. He says, make the people sit down. In other words, Jesus knows where they, they are. They're not ready. They're, they're in that discipleship stage. They're not yet ready to be priests. He puts their bicycle wheels on them, right? He's got to teach them how to ride. He says, make, make the people sit down. You guys know the story. In companies of 12. And notice, he uses them to, as he multiplies the bread and continues to multiply the bread and the fish, he, the miracle is distributed through the, the apostles. Just like when I taught my son Timmy to ride his bike. I'm, I'm running behind him, right? Teaching him how to ride a bike, and eventually I'm going to let go. Jesus is hanging on here. He's teaching them their dignity and what they are being called to do. But they're not getting it. By the way, here's a little bonus here. No extra charge. It's interesting that in both Mark's version of this, in Mark 6, verse 37, and in Matthew's uh, version, in Matthew 14, verse 16, you'll notice Jesus says, you give them to eat. When the question was first asked, you know, you know we need a whole, a whole lot of money to feed all these people, right? Jesus first told them to do it. But again, they couldn't see yet. And so Jesus performs the miracle and he uses them. But then look what happens here. Let's move forward to verse 15. After he performs the miracle, and, and there's so much bread that there's 12 baskets full left over, which is a powerful symbol, of course, of the 12 apostles, the foundation of the church, symbolic of the entire church. They then say, Verse 14, when the people saw the sign. Now, why were they following him? Because the signs they saw. And now what did he give them? Another sign. And look what it says. When they saw the sign which he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, I want you to notice something. There are some scholars that I've read that will say, well, perhaps they thought he was the prophet who was coming before the Messiah. I argue that is false. Because notice immediately perceiving this, they want to come and make him king by force. So they're, they're not believing he's the precursor. They're believing for John the Baptist had come. They're believing he is the Messiah, that king that the Israelites, especially among the zealots, but in general, they were expecting a king to come and conquer. And perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the hills by himself. So I want you to notice, they believe, folks. This is crucial. They saw signs. Here's another sign. They believe. They try to make him king. And Jesus has to kind of pass through their midst, as it were. Now we're going to kind of skip over. It's tempting. I would like to read a whole lot more because I, I love the, the, the story of Jesus walking on the water. But I will mention this to you. It's crucial for us in exegeting this text and helping our friends to be able to understand this, especially that are, those that are not Catholic. But for us as well, we need to understand that the gospel writers were each writing to different communities. And most, most of us have heard of this, right, Deacon? Most of us have heard, for example, if I were to ask you guys, who was Matthew writing to? 
almost everybody that has been in the church for a while knows Matthew is writing to a Jewish Christian community, and there's all sorts of historical, doctrinal, textual evidence for this. Yes, Matthew was writing to a Jewish Christian audience. And by the way, this is why in Matthew's gospel, you'll notice key differences even with this text. In Matthew's version of this text here in John 6, in Matthew 14, his emphasis is different. He tells the same story of the miracle of the loaves and the feeding of the 20,000, and, and, and it, then immediately Jesus going up onto a mountain and then walking on the water and all of it. It's all the same, but in Matthew's version, it's very different. Afterward, the emphasis is on Peter. The emphasis is on Peter walking on the water, the miracle that you don't find in any of the other Gospels. In fact, throughout Matthew's Gospel, we have more emphasis on Petrine authority than any other Gospel. Well, why? Because the issue among the Jewish Christians was, who is this Peter guy to be telling us that the Gentiles don't have to be circumcised or we don't have to circumcise our children? Who is this guy? I mean, come on, Charlton Heston gave us circumcision, right? Or was that Moses? It was one of those guys. <laughs> I think Charlton Heston was a better Moses than Moses was. But at any rate, you'll notice here, Matthew's gospel tells this story, but there's a different emphasis and story in order to meet the needs of his community. If you, if you look at Mark 6, in Mark's version, you have the same story, same timeline, but in that story, Mark emphasizes all of the apostles. You'll notice Peter disappears in the story in Mark's version. Why is that? Well, we know uh, from our tradition that Peter gave the gospel of Mark to Mark. Mark, in fact, was his beloved son, as we read in, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. Mark was a disciple of Peter traveled with Peter, and so he received his gospel from Peter. And you'll notice all the Petrine texts, the keys of the kingdom, the walking on the water in Matthew 14, or the miraculous catching of the, the fish. I love that story in, in Matthew 17. And, and the calling of, of Peter, the first apostle, protos in Greek, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 2, those aren't in you, you don't find those in Mark's gospel. Why? Because we know that St. Peter was an extremely humble man. Extremely. So humble was he that, as many of you know, when he was going to be crucified, he refused to be crucified as his Lord and said, I want to be crucified upside down. And the Romans obliged him on that. He was an incredibly humble man. And so his emphasis is not on himself. It's on the college of the apostles or the college of bishops. Because you'll notice when Jesus comes walking on the water, you don't have the, the Peter walking on the water. You have all of the apostles call out. Then Jesus turns and steps into the boat. They're emphasizing the college of the apostles. Not that, and I want to emphasize, there's no contradiction here whatsoever. They're not contradictory. They're just bringing out different aspects to minister to their communities. Peter is emphasizing the college. Now, what about John's gospel? And here's the one, Deacon Sabatino, I find a lot of Catholics aren't up on. Who is John writing to? Well, we get, and, and I have to tell you guys, about 30 years ago, 
when I was studying Catholicism, when I was first introduced to this through reading St. Irenaeus, the Bishop of Lyon, reading uh, St. Epiphanius, reading Eusebius of Caesarea, reading other of the fathers of the church, this was a mind blower for me. Discovering that when John wrote his gospel, he had a particular arch heretic, as he was called, in mind, and his name was Serenthus. Now, many of you have probably heard of Serenthus, many of you haven't. Well, if you haven't, you just learned something. But Serenthus is a character that you do well to remember. He was evidently a Christian. He was a Jewish Christian. We read a lot about him in Epiphanius, uh, St. Epiphanius in his uh, Panarion, written in the 4th century. I mentioned St. Irenaeus as well, uh, Eusebius of Caesarea. In fact, he's the guy, Serenthus, who famously uh, Eusebius writes about, he entered into a bathhouse where John was. And John exclaims, flee for your lives, the bathhouse is going to collapse because the enemy of truth just entered in, right? So this is the guy, Serenthus, who we believe was a disciple of John. He was a Christian. In fact, according to St. Epiphanius, he's kind of the story behind some of the stories you even read in the book of Acts. But at any rate, that would go beyond what we want to do here. The bottom line is, Serenthus was famous for Four key teachings. Now, there's a whole lot more false teaching that Serenthus uh, had, but here's four keys you want to remember. Number one, Serenthus denied that God is the creator of all things, St. Irenaeus tells us, right? He was one of the fathers of Gnosticism, right? So God is not the creator of all things. God only created pure spirit. Spirit is good, Matter is evil, according to Serenthus, right? In fact, a later Gnostic by the name of Marcion would say there are two principles. There's a good, a good God of sorts and an evil God. The evil God is the source of matter in the Old Testament. The good guy is the source of spirit and the New Te- Testament, okay? Well, that's kind of what Serenthus w- was teaching. Number one, radical separation between spirit, which is good, matter, which is evil, And God has nothing to do with this creation, nothing to do with this evil matter. Okay, number one. Number two, Serenthus taught, he was was also an Ebionite, which means he taught that Jesus was not God. Jesus was born of a human sexual relationship between Mary and Joseph. And what he taught was that the Christ came upon him at his baptism and then left him on the cross, but the Christ was impassable. The Christ never suffered. The Christ is that pure spirit. It's only the the man, Jesus, and when he died, he went to the dust, you know, because matter is evil. Are you following me? This is very important, folks, that we understand, right? So, number one, God is not the creator of all things. He's the only, the creator of pure spirit, which is good. Jesus then, the man is not God. He's just, you know, got this evil dirt suit, as, as I heard one prophet, <laughs> one prophet, one, one Protestant preacher say the other day, hints of, of Gnosticism in that man's teaching. But at any rate, um, so Jesus himself, Jesus the Christ then, was never incarnate. He denied the incarnation of Jesus the Christ because think of it this way. Serenthus taught that the Christ came upon Christ and then left Christ. 
There's no incarnation. There's no hypostatic union, if you're following. Now, think about this. How many times do you read in St. John? If you look at his letters, 1 John chapter 4, for example, if any man says that Jesus the Christ is not born of the flesh, that is Antichrist. Hmm, do you see Serenthus hiding behind this? This is why John wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. This is why, in fact, you have hints of it in the book of Revelation as well, but certainly here in the gospel. You know what, I'm going to give you some answers at the back of the book right now. Think about just what we've mentioned so far. God is not the creator of all things. Jesus is not God. The Christ was not incarnate. The Christ never suffered and died. It was only the man. All of these things. What does John emphasize right from the beginning of his gospel? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Any questions, Serenthus? And by the way, for my Jehovah's Witness friends, that's not a God, it's the God. Or <laughs> maybe we can talk about that later. But then notice what it says. And all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. It's like John is emphasizing. And remember, folks, from a pastoral perspective, there were many Catholics who were being led astray by Serenthus. St. John is hammering this point home because some of the flock were leaving. In fact, Serenthus himself was a believer who left. You know, and I'm sure it broke John's heart. So he's hammering this. And then think about this. In verse 10, he came into the world, and the world was made by him, and the world received him not. And then verse 14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. I mean, in the first 14 verses, you have hammered home the incarnation. Jesus is God. He has flesh. That is, the same word who was from all eternity possesses flesh. All of these things Serenthus was denying. But now let's get to the most important thing for our talk right now. Guess what else? Oh my goodness, I get a little excited on this one, Deacon, because <laughs> this is good. This is good stuff right here. If Serenthus denied that God's a creator of all things, he denied Jesus was God, he denied the incarnation, denied Jesus had a, Jesus the Christ had a physical body, what do you think he would have taught about the Eucharist, folks? He taught the Eucharist was purely symbolic. Now, folks, I have to say to you, can you imagine when I discovered this about 29 years ago, I'm reading and studying history and discovering, oh my gosh, the guy that John is writing his gospel against denied the real presence for our Lord in the Eucharist. I was on the side of the heretic. I find... I, I found myself quite uncomfortable with that. Let's just put it that way. I mean, this, this was a mind blower. Now, I, I should also note here, you don't have to have this historical anecdote here to understand John's gospel. I mean, you can get it without it. But I'm telling you, when you help folks to understand what's behind the gospel, it comes alive. It comes alive. And so now, when we read John chapter 6 and you understand that Jesus here, the words of Jesus being appropriated by John are aiming at Serenthus, unlike Mark, right, who's aiming at a more universal audience, Peter at the helm, Matthew, who's aiming at a Jewish audience. John is going to hammer home the fourth of those key misnomers of Serenthus, and that is the real presence. Now, 
with this as a backdrop, let's read a few more verses here. So I want to, I want to, I'm, I'm going to kind of hurry a little bit because I do want to get some questions, but I want you to catch this. After, you know, the miracle of the loaves, Jesus, you know, they want to come and make him king, as we saw there in verse 15. He sends the apostles. <laughs> Once again, guys, he is setting them up just like he sets us up in our lives. He sends the knuckleheads, or excuse me, the apostles out on the sea. Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray. And, I, you know, in my mind's eye, Holy Deacon, now this is not in the text. This is just a Tim Staples-ism here. You don't have to buy it. I'm not selling it. Did you hear that, Carl Keating? I'm not selling this one. <laughs> right? uh, I just see Jesus going up on the mountain with his father and laughing. I can just see him laughing and saying, look, Father, look at them now. There, there they go out on the water. Well, I better get going now because they're about to drown. <laughs> right? I mean, Jesus knows his apostles, professional fishermen that never caught a fish. Right? Now, not only can they not fish, but they can't sail either because there they are out on the water and they're ready to go. And you know the story. He comes out walking on the water. What a beautiful story there. We don't have time to get into all the detail. But then after the miracle, I want you to see here in verse 21, when they were glad to take him into the boat, immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. Verse 22 says, on the next day, the people who remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. It's a beautiful little text there. Notice, these people, remember, we're talking 20,000 people that have been following Jesus for some time, some of them longer than others. Many of them were disciples that had followed him for some time. Jesus disappeared on them, and they knew. Now, there's only one boat. Where did Jesus go? Well, you and I know he kind of disappeared like Clarence the Angel in It's a Wonderful Life. Remember that scene? Joseph! Joseph! If you haven't seen the movie, you're in sin. You need to see the movie. But Joseph! And he disappeared. That's kind of like what happened with Jesus. He disappeared. But the people noticed only one boat. The apostles got in it. They're on the other side. Where did Jesus go? Well, I, I don't know. But look what they do. Right? However... Boats from Tiberias came near the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the people saw Jesus was not there, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Very important that you understand. These people, 20,000 of them, they're getting in boats, anything they can find that floats, and they go to the other side because they want to find Jesus. Once again, these are disciples. These are people who love Jesus. They want to find him. They saw the signs. They saw the miracles. Now look at verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus says something that, let, let's just say, Jesus never read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. That's one thing you know when you read the Gospels. Because look, these people have been, some of them, probably for months, certainly many for days have been following. They've been searching for him all night. They go to the other side. They find him. And look what Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Man, you talk about a slap in the face, right? You're not following. You're, you're following because you got a free lunch, man. You're like a bunch of fraternity guys looking for a free meal. Oh, my gosh. 
But isn't that Jesus? Because, look, folks, we can, put, we can play the game, can't we, as, as Catholic Christians, as Christians in general, we can play the game. But how many of you know Jesus sees your heart? Amen? You may be playing the game and, oh, I go to Mass. I do, but Jesus sees you. He lays it bare right here. When I read this text, Deacon, it makes me want to go to confession. You know why? Because Jesus sees my heart. You know what? Go to confession, folks. Go to get this stuff out because he already sees it anyway. Right? That's, that's what I get out of this. But let, let's keep reading here because look at this. You seek me because you had a free lunch. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him has God the Father set his seal. And at this point, they are once again cut to the heart. Notice when they saw the signs, they said, we believe. And then they see another sign, the miracle of the loaves. And once again, we believe. Now he exposes their hearts, the fraud in their hearts. And once again, they say, okay, you got us. We believe. What now? Now, beautiful here. Then they said, okay, what must we do? Right? You got us. You know what's in our hearts. What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And then they say to him, what sign do you do? Is that incredible? Right? Why were they following him? Because they saw the signs. <laughs> then he does another sign. Okay, we believe. Now he lays open their hearts. And okay, Lord, whatever you want. Well, if you want to follow me, believe. And then they ask for another sign. Remember this, folks, in our spiritual lives. Please remember this, my Catholic friends. We do not chase signs. In fact, it is a dangerous thing in the life of a Catholic. Have you ever met folks who, you know, it's almost like getting their fix. You know, got us another Eucharistic miracle. Oh, I heard there was a potato chip that had Jesus uh, smiling on it over here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go 3,000 miles to find that potato chip. Folks, signs are for unbelievers. Amen? The ultimate sign, my friends, that brings salvation is the Eucharist. The ultimate. I, I want you to follow me on this because th this is a really important point. When they said to him, what must we do? Jesus said, this is the work of God, believe. Now, why did he say, was he teaching justification by faith alone? <laughs> of course not. And some of our Protestant friends will say, he'll say, they'll say, see, he says, all you have to do is believe. No, what Jesus was saying is that he knew he was about to share something with them that out of the crowd of 20,000, after he was done, he would have 11 left. He knew what he was about to share, they were going to reject in mass. He says, if you want to follow me, you need to believe. And believe, belief, according to Jesus, is a work. Amen? It's something you must choose. Of course, faith in the first place is a gift of God's grace. It's a theological virtue. Theological comes from God. It is a gift, but it's also a virtue, which means it involves a human act. We must believe. And that involves a free act. What must we do? He says, believe. This is the work of God, believe. And they say, what sign do you perform? See, revealing there's a faith problem here. 
reminiscent. Uh, remember, there were two other occasions where folks were seeking signs. And in fact, one time in Matthew chapter 12, verse 39, remember Jesus got mad. When the people were seeking after signs, you know what Jesus said? He said, a wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after signs, but only one sign will be given, the sign of Jonah. And what's the sign of Jonah? Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. This is the one salvific sign. Please remember that, my Catholic friends. The one salvific sign is the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Notice also in John chapter 2, when, when Jesus threw over the money changers' tables, right? I always joke, God got mad that day. You don't want to be there when God gets mad. But he got mad that day. He threw over the money changers' tables. And what did they respond? They said, what sign do you do to show you have the authority to do such things, right? And Jesus told him only one sign. Destroy this temple in three days I will raise it up again, right? The one salvific sign, that's the sign we seek after, the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice here, when they say, what sign do you perform, what does Jesus do? He gives them the Eucharistic discourse, my brothers and sisters, the Eucharistic discourse. But wait a minute, isn't that a contradiction? Because I thought you said, Tim, that the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus is the one salvific sign. Well, yes, it is. But the Eucharist is our participation in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is our receiving what Jesus did for us on the cross. Now let's read forward here. This is the work of God believed. They say, what sign do you show? Our Look at verse 31, folks. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is re written, he gave them bread from heaven. In verse 32, Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Give us this bread always. Now I want you to follow me, folks. This is crucial. Jesus once again demonstrates he did not read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, because imagine this Jewish crowd, they're, they're sticking their chests out, and they're saying, hey, what sign do you show us? Moses, man, Moses gave us bread from heaven. In other words, they're putting it in his face. What sign are you going to give? And he responds, Moses didn't give you. Ah, uh, what? Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. In other words, man, the, the Jews in that audience are saying, what are you talking about, man? All right, you're messing with Moses now, right? Moses didn't give, my father gives you the true bread from heaven. And they say to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Now, what I'd like to do here, because uh, we are going to need some time for questions, so I'm going to kind of fast forward here. Rather than reading all the verses, I'm going to put my Bible aside here. Because I want to bring things to a close, and hopefully we can facilitate some questions here. But this, right now, if you forget everything else I have said, don't forget this right now. Because this launches Jesus into his discourse, the bread of life discourse. Notice he says, if you read from verse 35 there, 
down to verse 41. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am come down from heaven. And he repeats it. I am the bread of life. I am come down from heaven. Now, why does he emphasize this? Remember what we said about who John is writing, who he has in mind when he's writing this. Serenthus and all of his followers that were denying essential teachings among them, the divinity of Christ. In other words, they denied that Jesus came down from heaven. Jesus was just a man. He was born of a sexual relationship between Mary and Joseph. See, oh my goodness. In John, I'll, another added bonus here. In John 8, 23, you remember Jesus says, I am from above, you are from beneath. Look, he has little zingers all over John's gospel emphasizing this fact. I came down from heaven. Why? I'm God. Amen. You are from beneath. But see, Serenthus denied that. I am the bread of life. Come down from heaven. Come down from heaven. Come down from heaven. He repeats it. And then in verse 41, I want you to notice the Jews' response. And I want you to highlight in your Bible, highlight verses 41 and 52, because those two verses are hinges to where you can understand the rest of this discourse. But as I mentioned before, the different gospel writers are bringing out things that Jesus really did, really taught, and that were really said in order to make a theological point and a pastoral point for the audience to whom he is writing. I hope we're getting this, folks. This is crucial, right? Well, in verse 41, the Jews respond to this discourse, I'm come down from heaven, I'm come down from heaven. Now, he says a number of other things, unless the Father draws you, you're not going to see, all of that other stuff. But what do they pull out? What do the Jewish, does the Jewish audience pull out? Or more specifically, what does John emphasize that the Jews objected to? They say, how can this man say he came down from heaven? Right? And then, of course, that beautiful discourse there, beginning in verse 41. Hey, man, I went to Nazareth Elementary School with this guy, right? I know his mama and his dad. How can he say he came down from heaven? Now, this thing is brought home. Their, their objection is exactly the objection of Serenthus and his followers that were leading Catholics astray. And so John emphasizes, yes, Jesus is God. He came down from heaven no matter what Serenthus says, right? So when, in verse 41, when they say, how can this man say he came down from heaven? I know his mom and daddy and all of that. How does Jesus respond? He repeats it. I am the bread come down from heaven. I am the bread come down from heaven over and over, all the way down to verse 51 until he says, and the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then we transition to the next question. Remember what I said, verses 41 and 52, key verses. The two questions John has the Jews ask, how can he... Being a man, how can he come down from heaven? And now this next question, when he says, the bread that I will give is my flesh, given for the life of the world, their response is, how can he give us his flesh? How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Folks, when I discovered the truth of this that I'm sharing with you right now, this was a revolution as well as a revelation in my life when I saw, oh my goodness, that's exactly what I was saying as a Protestant. 
to you Catholics. How can you say Jesus is going to give his flesh to eat? That's cannibalism, right? Obviously, he's speaking symbolic. We'll, we'll get to the cannibalism thing here in a moment. But most importantly, right now, folks, that's the question that the heretic was asking. Jesus placed that question, question on the lips of the Jews. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And what does Jesus respond? In verse 53, he says, oh, guys, I was just speaking symbolically. <laughs> Is that what he says? Uh, no, folks, that was a rhetorical question. <laughs> I hope we didn't get any amens out there. All right. He says, truly, truly, similar to what he did back in verse 41 or after verse 41. How can this man say he came down from heaven? He repeats it. Amen. You got it right. Yes, I came down from heaven. Now, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? He starts in verse 53 by saying, amen, amen, in Greek, right? That comes from the Hebrew. So be it, so be it. Truly, truly, you got it, you got it. In other words, you're exactly right. Unless you eat the flesh, son of man, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And then he emphasizes it over and over again. I think I'm going to kind of cut this short because I do want to get some, some questions here. I mean, we could read here, folks. I just want to do two, two brief things here. When you read the response, Jesus is obviously, and St. John, even more importantly, is bringing out the fact that the Eucharist is truly the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the Lord, his flesh. And notice he uses the term sarks, flesh, because that's the very word that Serenthus and his boy, boys despised, because the flesh is evil. The word was made flesh. The Eucharist is the flesh of the Son of God. And then from, where are we, about 52, 53, it's very in interesting because many of my friends who are Protestant that, that I talk to will say, as I once said, well, you know, he's speaking symbolically purely there. And yet, when you look at the language, the language intensifies. He begins by using the word phago in Greek uh, for eating my flesh. But as he goes along, and the Jews are having trouble with this, he intensifies it. He, he starts with phago, and then he moves to trago, down around verse 54 and 55, which is a more intense word. Um, phago is the second aorist form of, of the Greek verb estheo. And, you know, it just means to eat. But when he changes to trago, trago is a word that's used like for, for a lion rip, ripping apart its prey and gnawing on something. He's using language that intensifies. My flesh is real food, real drink. He that eats my flesh and drinks my blood, that is gnaws on me and consumes me, I will raise up in the last day. So what about that, that th those who would argue, well, you know, Tim, if, if I'm going to take this literally, that, that's, that's cannibalism. Well, folks, of course not. It's not cannibalism. Why? Because in cannibalism, folks, the person dies that you eat. Jesus doesn't die. Secondly, in cannibalism, you eat part of the victim, right? And in a bloody way. In the Eucharist, we don't eat part of Jesus. We eat the whole Jesus, body, blood, soul, and divinity. You don't eat parts of him, amen? We consume the whole Jesus. And thirdly, there is substantial change going on when you cannibalize someone. There's absolutely no change to Jesus in the Eucharist. The only change that happens is the one who consumes him. 
who receives the Eucharist. This is not cannibalism, my friends. And in fact, Jesus himself emphasizes here near the end. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to forego going down to verses 62 and 63. Maybe we can get to that in the Q&A uh, section because I, I, I do want to get some questions and answers. But I do, I want to leave you with this. I will, in my own life, and, and I will encourage you guys once again, get a hold of my CD set. It's, I mean, I go into, I answer every objection you can imagine when it comes to the Eucharist. We answer them all there. But for me, learning about the backdrop of the Gospel of John was such a revelation for me. It really, it revolutionized the way I read John's Gospel. And this applies to the entire gospel. I mean, you, you see in John's gospel, the emphasis on the Eucharist like none other. You see the emphasis on the divinity of Christ, and that goes throughout the gospel. You know, it, the I am passages, four times Jesus uses the divine name, right? In John 8, 24, John 8, 28, John 8, 58, John 19, 6. He uses the I am in an obvious way that he's God. There, you know, John gives us commentary in John chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. When he heals a man on the Sabbath, and of course they want to kill him because he healed on the Sabbath. It, it's fascinating there that, that John says they wanted to kill him, not just because he broke the Sabbath, but because he called God his Father, making himself equal with God. That's John's commentary saying Jesus, in the way he called God his Father, was making himself equal with God. You have little commentary like that from John showing you that Jesus is God and showing the real presence of our Lord in the Eucharist. Now, if I could, I'm tempted to go to verses 62 and 63, but uh, should I? Okay, I, I will do that then. All right, because uh, this is, perhaps this is a, a good way to... to uh, in this because as many of you know many of my evangelistic friends that are listening right now if you were to go through this with your Protestant friend let's say or somebody that uh, is a member of one of the various cults or, or what we call quasi Christian sects like Jehovah's Witnesses and such invariably they will go down to they'll say okay I hear everything you're saying it does seem like Jesus means what he says when he says, unless you eat the flesh, son of man, drink his blood, you have no life in you. But doesn't he give us the answer at the back of the book here? Because when we go down to verse 16, let's read this together. Many of his disciples, when they heard this, and that is this entire Eucharistic discourse, they've seen the miracles and such, they say, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself, it's knowing in himself that his disciples murmured at it, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. That one verse I used to say when I was Protestant. See, that proves that all this talk about his flesh and everything, is, it's just symbolic. Because notice he says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The flesh profits nothing. So you Catholics are wrong. All that Tim Staples said before is nonsense because here he clarifies that he is speaking symbolically. Well, is that the case? Of course not. But let's take a look at the text here. Notice it starts with, Many of his disciples. Now, first, 
it's the multitudes that, that are having difficulty. They're saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? The multitudes of the people here. But now it's the disciples, many of his disciples. These are people that have been traveling with him a long time, and they say, man, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? Eat your flesh, drink your blood. But Jesus, it says specifically, knowing in himself that his disciples murmured at this, says, do you take offense at this? What if you were to see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? Do you believe, and I asked my Protestant friends this, that Jesus is saying, what if you symbolically see me rise up where I was before? Is he clarifying here that, oh, I was merely speaking symbolically? Of course not, because we know in Acts chapter 1, they would in fact see him ascend up where he was before. They would watch his feet go right up through the clouds, my friends. In other words, Jesus is saying to them, you, you're, you're having a hard time believing this? Hang out with me, and you're going to see all kinds of wild stuff, right? What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending where he was before. It's the spirit that gives life. The flesh is no avail. I want to make three points here. Number one, notice he doesn't say my flesh is of no avail. He says the flesh is of no avail. There is a big difference. In fact, it, it wouldn't make much sense would it, for Jesus to have just taught us at some length about his flesh being give for the, given for the life of the world and then to turn around and say, but my flesh profits nothing. That's absurd. He doesn't say my flesh. He says the flesh. And that term in the New Testament, hey, sarx in Greek, is a loaded term. It's used all over the New Testament for, uh, with, with a, a connotation of the human person apart from, from grace. Think about Jesus himself, his usage of it, in Mark 14, 38. Remember when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane? And he says to the apostles, pray that you enter not into temptation. The, the, the spirit is willing, but what? The flesh is weak. The flesh, referring to the human person apart from grace. Think about it in St. Paul. We could go many places in St. Paul. But I like 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Notice Paul there says, the natural man cannot understand the things of the spirit, for they are spiritually discerned. Now there... It's a Greek word, psuche, the soulish man, the man who's in the intellectual realm, cannot understand the things of the Spirit. But if you keep moving down to chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, he says, I cannot speak to you, Corinthians, you know, uh, as spiritual, but you are yet in the flesh, right? Romans chapter 8, verse 8, he that is in the flesh cannot understand the things of God. Romans 8, 8, they that are in the flesh cannot please God, Romans 8, Verses 11 through 13, they that are in the flesh cannot understand, cannot perceive, cannot please God, right? I mean, it's all over. I'll give you homework. Read 1 Corinthians 2, 14 down to chapter 3, verse 2, and read Romans chapter 8, the first 14 verses, and you'll get the sense of what we're talking about here. The flesh refers to the human person apart from grace in one sense. So what Jesus is saying it's the spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. Notice he follows. There are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew, Jesus knew from the first who those were that did not believe and who it was that would betray him. This is one of the reasons why we believe it was at this point that Judas departed. He rejected the, 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 the truth of the Eucharist. 
But look at verse 60. This is why I told you no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Very important. Go back to verse 44. Before this discourse, he begins by saying, unless the Father draws you, you are not going to understand this. And then after, for this reason, he said, unless the Father draws you, you're not going to come to me. You're not going to understand this. Why would he say that? Because these are hard sayings, my friends. This is a great mystery. And apart from the grace of the Holy Spirit, you are not going to see this. That, my friends, is one reason why Jesus says this. My brothers and sisters, if you're a Catholic right now and you believe in the Eucharist, you have a great gift. That, my friends, is a gift of grace. But remember, that gift can be lost. It can be lost. We need to cherish this gift and nurture this gift of faith that we have received. But I want to give you a second uh, understanding, which, and, and it's not a matter of either or, it's both and here. A second layer of meaning here in verse 63. It's the spirit that gives life, the flesh is of no avail, is Jesus' way of avoiding a crass sort of literalistic understanding of his flesh. To understand it, you know, we're not talking about breaking off a piece of his body, right? You know, you've probably heard this, uh, my, my deacon friend, I'm sure many times as you evangelize, folks will say, well, Jesus was obviously speaking symbolic, and he does everywhere, right? In John chapter 10, he says, I am the door into the sheepfold. In John chapter 15, I am the vine and you are the branches, Right? He's obvious. He uses symbolic language everywhere. So this is obviously symbolic. Well, first of all, nobody hearing him in John 10, after he said, I'm the door to the sheepfold, nobody said, oh my gosh, you mean we've got to turn a doorknob on Jesus' belly in order to get to heaven? We got to hear his hinges squeak? Nobody in John chapter 15 said, we got to pluck a leaf off of Jesus, man. He's a No, everyone understood he was speaking symbolically there. I mean, I'll, I'll toss out another example. In John chapter 4, verse 32, Jesus says, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Remember that? And the apostles, I love their response. The apostles go, oh my gosh, it's because we forgot to bring the tuna fish sandwiches, man. Right? Now, they don't say it exactly like that, but they, they thought it was because they forgot to bring food, so Jesus had to hide some sandwiches under his cloak. But what does Jesus do when he knows his disciples are misunderstanding, he says, the meat that I am speaking of is doing the will of my Father, right? Go to Matthew 16, verses 6 through 16. This time it's beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, right? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. What are the, the apostles? Do? Oh, I love the apostles. Once again, it's because we forgot the bread, man, right? So Jesus explains, no, the leaven of the Pharisees is their teaching. But here... When, when the multitude say, how can he give us his flesh to eat? He doesn't clarify and say, oh, guys, I was just speaking. He reemphasizes. He hits it again and again and again. And then when they uh, call into question, how can he say he came down from heaven? The same thing. My friends, there is a radical difference between this text and those other texts where Jesus speaks symbolically. But last thing I want to say, when he says it's the Spirit that gives life, we need to understand the Spirit gives life to our understanding, but it's also the Spirit that gives life to the Eucharist. See, it's the Spirit. We, we pray in the epiclesis. We pray the Holy Spirit down upon the gifts. 
because it's the Holy Spirit that confects the Eucharist. Jesus' flesh is only our salvation because of the hypostatic union, that his nature is joined in the one person of Christ, joined to divinity. Not that the humanity seeks or ceases from being human. It is fully human. But it's divinized in the sense that its subject is the divine person. And that, my friends, is an act of the power of the Holy Spirit. So it is, in fact, the Spirit that gives life to Jesus' flesh, to the Eucharist, to our lives, as well as our understanding. But to attempt to say that this is denying everything that Jesus has taught up to this point, his flesh is, is meaningless, that would be a Gnostic understanding which is exactly the opposite of what John is teaching. In fact, John is rejecting that notion throughout his gospel. God bless you guys. Wonderful, wonderful, Tim. We have another question coming in um, from, uh, oh, from Lee, Lee Senna, uh, who's asking about Protestant communion. And uh, uh, what is it, Tim? I mean, you know, yeah. some say it's, Something like what the Catholics say it is, and some don't. No. In fact, Protestant communion is, in, in my Assembly of God community, it was grape juice and crackers. And that's all it is. And in fact, that's all they even believed that it was. It is amazing to me how when I began to study Catholicism and I was moving in the direction of the Catholic faith, I went to an Assembly of God community where I was a youth pastor, where we had probably, well, certainly half of our board of deacons and elders were ex-Catholics. And a large portion of our community was ex-Catholics. And I could not believe when I came out with my, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of becoming Catholic, there was an elder at my church who confided in me. He said, Tim, I believe in the Eucharist. He's, he, he had left the Catholic faith. He says, when I receive the grape juice and crackers here, I just believe it's the Eucharist, so I believe it's the Eucharist for me. And I almost fell over. I said, Gary, no. Number one, Pastor Gary doesn't even believe that. So what in the world, how is that going to be the Eucharist? But number two, unless you have valid orders, unless you ordained by one who was ordained, who was ordained and ordained and ordained by an apostle, you don't have a valid sacrament of holy orders. And without the sacrament of holy orders, <clears throat> there is no valid Eucharist. So it doesn't matter what an individual Protestant pastor may even believe or not believe. The fact is, all they're receiving is grape juice and crackers. Or if you're Lutheran, you're receiving wine and bread because you don't have valid orders. That's the key. Thank you, Tim. Thank you. This, this question is maybe a little bit slightly off topic, but it's related. I think it's important. Uh, Betty is asking, um, how do you respond to someone who says that the multiplication of loaves and fishes was about Jesus, Jesus teaching us how to share and oh. didn't really take place? Oh, my goodness. It's painful. My wife and I uh, were going to a parish where... Unfortunately, a priest actually preached that from the pulpit. That was our last Sunday at that parish, unfortunately. But, you know, for 2,000 years, the church, the fathers of the church, has always perennially understood this as a miracle. And that is a very dangerous error to teach, 
that we're not, we're talking about the miracle of generosity here and not a miracle of our Lord. Vatican Council One uh, teaches that the miracles in the Gospels and the ongoing miracles in the church are the surest signs of revelation. To deny these miracles in the Gospels, I believe, is attacking the very heart of the Gospel. Some might think I'm extremist on this, but I don't think so, because you're, if you go after the miracles of Christ, you're going after the essence of who Christ is and what he came for. Because the miracles, as we mentioned before, demonstrate the... Look, let me, let me use this as an example. In John chapter 10, remember when Jesus in verse 30 made the famous statement, right? I and the Father are one, right? One of the many ways, different ways he reveals his divinity in John's gospel. Uh, they immediately take up stones to kill him. If you go down to verses 34 and 35, what does Jesus say? He says, if you cannot believe my word, believe for the work's sake. Right? In other words, Jesus knows, I know what I'm saying to you sounds absolutely crazy. To the Jewish mind, the incarnation was nuts. Right? So Jesus is in essence saying, I understand that. But look, if you can't believe my words, believe for the sake of the works. Right? Anybody else raised the dead lately? How many do you know? Search the prophets in the Old Testament. Who controlled the elements like I have? And even more, and think of this. Even more so than Moses or the prophets like Elijah and Elisha who raised the dead, notice Jesus does it by his own authority. You know, he says, uh, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. What? What did you just say, Jesus? He says, I. He says, you know, and, uh, and that's in John chapter 2, verses 17 through 21. I will raise myself from the dead. He says in, in Matthew chapter 9, verses 2 through 6, I say to you, your sins are forgiven, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say, it wasn't God forgives your sins through me. He says, I. And all through the Gospels, I, I just recently read a book. I, I recommend it highly, folks, written by a Jewish rabbi by the name of Jacob Neusner. It's called A Rabbi Talks with Jesus. Cardinal Ratzinger gave a blurb for that book in the beginning of it. And basically, you know, his conclusion is that Jesus is not who he says he is. But the rabbi brings out so beautifully all the different ways in which Jesus uh, is teaching that he's God. Now, of course, that's the reason why Rabbi Neusner did not. He says, I can't follow him. But he brings out all, and what, this is one of the things he, he brings out. He says, when, when Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, only God can correct, change, update the Torah. Only God. Sorry, he says to Jesus. Well, Cardinal Ratzinger actually responded to that book, at least in part, in his first book, Jesus of Nazareth, that I mentioned earlier. A good chunk of that is actually a response to his friend, Rabbi Jacob Neusner. But the, the point I'm getting at here is one of the crucial and key ways that Jesus revealed his divinity was in his miracles. So if you go after the miracles, you are ultimately going after Jesus, and you're also going after the faith of the common man, because many, it for many, Deacon Sabatino, it is the miracles that bring them to faith. I know my mother. My mother is not, she might be on this right now, I don't know, but my mother, she was not a theologian. 
She wasn't going to come to the Catholic faith because of the brilliant teachings we have on the hypostatic union. But she came through the miracles. So I beg my, my priest friends, if you're listening now, get on your knees and beg God for the grace of God to see the truth of the miracles of Christ, because these are essential to the gospel. John chapter 6 and the miracle of the loaves is the precursor to the miracle of the Eucharist itself. It is, in fact, a miracle. Tim, thank you. Uh, a wonderful, wonderful evening with you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.